All right, let's pray, and then we will get started. Father, thank you for this beautiful day, and thank you for the privilege of Bible study and fellowship. We really miss, Father, being able to be in the same room with each other, but we are grateful that uh, technology allows us to uh, at least see a picture, see each other, and to uh, talk to each other, and so uh, we're very grateful. We pray now that you will bless us in our continuing study of the Gospel of Luke. We thank you for um, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the revelation of Jesus that we see in this beautiful gospel. And so I pray today that you will speak to our hearts as we study, and I pray that the rest of this day will be one in which we gladly, joyfully, happily serve you and uh, serve others in your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, we're at the fourth chapter of Luke, verse 14. And I've entitled this section, which is verse 14 through 30, Rejected at Home. Rejected at Home. So let's read beginning with verse 14. I'm going to go all the way through 30, and then we'll talk about it for just a moment. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Now, remember, he had had uh, his wilderness experience prior to this. That was in verses 1 through 13. So following the temptation in the wilderness, he returns to Galilee. Verse 16, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Now, what are they really, just stop for a moment. What are they really asking Jesus to do? They are asking him to prove himself. Show us that you are who you just claim to be. Show us a miracle like we've heard you did in Capernaum. We want to see it. This is your hometown. We're we're, we're neighbors to your family. We've known you since you were knee-high to a grasshopper. So why don't you tell us or show us? Give us a demonstration of who you are. And in verse 24, he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Now he's giving us a tip 
as to what's going to be in just a few moments. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. What would she have been? A Gentile. Verse 27. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus has just given a clear message by naming two Gentiles and saying there were a lot of widows that could have been blessed, but who did, who was the chosen one from Elijah? And in Elisha, Elisha, there were a lot of lepers in Israel, but who was healed? A Gentile. Well, that didn't go over well with his Jewish Nazareth audience. And it says in verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, uh, I know that in my life of preaching, I've had some sermons that were better than others. Some, I'm sure, were not very good. And probably in the hearts of listeners, they were thinking, when is he going to get finished? But I've never had an audience try to kill me, as uh, happened with Jesus. But he infuriated those in attendance at the synagogue because of his clearly saying, I am the Messiah, and also saying to them the message is not just for Jews, but it is also for Gentiles. And that's pretty clear in, in what Jesus said in the synagogue. So let's think about this passage uh, for just a moment. The praise that comes to Jesus that we find in verse 15 is going to be short-lived. And I think we are all old enough to understand that praise can be very fleeting. Someone may choose to praise you today for something, but you understand that is not likely to be a permanent situation. And for Jesus, uh, his praise is going to go away very quickly. And to the polar opposite side of that, they're going to try to kill him, throw him off the cliff on which Nazareth was built. And if you go to Nazareth today, and that is not as easy as it used to be because of its location. But if you go to Nazareth today, they do have a place where they say the synagogue was located. You can go in it and then they'll they'll take you to the edge of the cliff on which the town is built and say this is where they were going to throw him overboard. I mean, down the hill and you can stand there and look and say, yeah, he would not have survived that. But it didn't happen. More on that in a minute. So Nazareth is Jesus' hometown. Now, he was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth, where his father, or his earthly father, was a carpenter. And of course, Joseph's name is mentioned in this text. 
And it's by way of saying, the one who just spoke those words, isn't he just, isn't he Joseph's boy? We saw him grow up. Where does all this come from? Now, no surprise that when Jesus gets to Nazareth, where does he go? He goes to the synagogue. And as we look at scripture, we see that Jesus would always go and worship at the synagogue. Of course, the temple in Jerusalem, but would go to the synagogue and speak there. Um, so this is no surprise. I would just simply say to us, if Jesus needed the synagogue, then I need the church. And I suspect you would agree that we all need the church. Jesus wanted to be, needed to be at the synagogue. And it's hard to be like Jesus if you're not faithful to the church. So we get to verses 16 through 20, and they've gathered in the synagogue. Wouldn't have been a very large place in those days in the city of Nazareth, but in the synagogue. Um, people are seated around the wall on, on benches, most likely. And we see that Jesus read from the scroll. And he reads from the book of Isaiah. Now, let me give you the setting there. Um, someone would have read first from the law. And that would have been an assigned passage. Because the Jewish people in their celebrations and their worships in the synagogue would have read through the law chronologically. And so somebody would have been assigned a passage, perhaps Exodus, perhaps Deuteronomy. But when it came to the reading of from the prophets, then the one reading was allowed to choose the passage that from which he wanted to read. So Jesus was acknowledged and was handed the scroll. He could have read wherever he wished to read, but he purposefully went to Isaiah, what we know to be Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, although understand in those days there were no chapter divisions to the scripture. But he went to what we know as Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. We read it a moment ago. And that is clearly a prophetic passage concerning the Messiah. And so after reading, as is the custom of the rabbi, he sat down. He didn't have a pulpit like I use or most pastors use when they preach, but he would have, he he sat down and now it says every eye in the room is on him. They are listening intently to what he's going to say. Now, they all know who he is. Not that they know for certain he's Messiah, but they know who he is. They know the stories of what he's been doing. They've heard about the miracles, some miracles that he had already performed. The word spread fast. They are looking eagerly at him to see what he's going to say, but also in their hearts, they are hoping to see a miracle. And surely if Jesus would do a miracle in Capernaum, then he would do a miracle in Nazareth. That'd be like Belton Tigers saying, surely if you're going to do a miracle over in Temple, you'd do a miracle right here in Belton. 
And so they're looking eagerly with expectation in your hometown. Show us something. Do a miracle, whatever. Well, they're going to see a miracle in just a few moments, but it is not what they expected. So we'll get there in just a moment. So in the prophecy of the Messiah, it says that the Messiah is anointed to preach. Now, did anybody think about what he read? For instance, we know that many were looking for the coming of the Messiah, but they weren't looking for a preacher. They weren't looking for a prophet. What were they looking for? A physical deliverer. Call him a, a general or a soldier or whatever you want to call him. But they were not looking for somebody to, to stand around and preach. They were looking for some action and they were hoping that when the Messiah came, he would cast off the shackles of the Romans and reestablish the kingdom in Israel again with the throne in Jerusalem. That's what they were hoping for. So when Jesus reads this passage, I wonder if they, what they were thinking in trying to connect the dots. But Jesus says this one, the Messiah is anointed to preach. He is a prophet. Now they knew that. I mean, they were not unfamiliar with this passage. But when they thought about the Messiah, they weren't really thinking about his priestly aspect or his prophetic aspect. They were thinking about the kingly aspect of the Messiah. So the Messiah is called priest, prophet, and king. But for most Jews, the emphasis was on king. I guess they were willing if the priest part of it and the prophet part of it have to come along with it, so be it. But what we really are interested in is the king part because we're tired of being glorified slaves. We want to be set free. So that's what they were looking for. So in the process of his elaborating or preaching or teaching on this text, Jesus says the Messiah has come to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, understand, he's clearly saying there, I'm not coming to lead a uh, a political movement. I am not a, uh, as it were, a social revolutionary. He is saying, I've come to preach. And there is both a literal and spiritual com- component to this as he talks about I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. And when he says the poor, he means the physically poor. And you know from having read the Gospels, and most of you have, that those who responded in the greatest numbers and with the most faith and with the most faithfulness to Jesus were the poor. So he said, I've come to proclaim good news or the gospel to the poor now but this has a double meaning because he is also coming to proclaim good news to the spiritually poor and being spiritually poor has nothing to do with your physical uh, wealth or your physical uh, possessions but it has everything to do with your heart so when he says i've come to proclaim good news to the poor yes he meant literally poor people But he also meant to everyone because we're all in poverty spiritually. We're all, we're lost and sinners in need of a savior. 
He says, also, I've been sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And, and in many cases, that would mean being set free from, from literal shackles. But what he really has in mind there, I think more than prisoners, because we don't really see much evidence of Jesus preaching in prisons while he was doing his earthly ministry. But what we do think about are those who are shackled by sin, prisoners to sin, chained by sin. That's you and that's me. That's our spiritual condition. And then it says recovery of sight for the blind. How many times do we see that quite literally in the scripture as Jesus heals the blind and gives them sight? But also the additional meaning there would be giving sight to the spiritual blind, spiritually blind. And, and, and that's you and me. Was it not John Newton in the writing of the great hymn, Amazing Faith, who said, I once was blind, but now I see. And that's really the, the testimony of all of us. I, we once were blind spiritually, but now we see and we see Jesus. So he says to proclaim the, the year of the Lord's favor, the year of, of the Lord's blessing upon the people. So we come to verse 21. He rolls up the scroll. He sits down and it appears in verse 21, that the sermon is probably the kind you'd like to hear from our pulpit once in a while, and that is one sentence. (laughs) One sentence, amen, go home. Well, no, I know you don't really feel that way. It appears that it's a one-sentence sermon, but but it's more than that. And you can see, if you look at verse 21, it says, he began by saying to them. So that wording lets us know there was more to follow but what what is of great importance that luke records here is this sentence today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing so what is jesus saying he is clearly saying i am the messiah this passage is a prophetic passage and i'm the one that fulfills the prophecy i am the Messiah. There's no mistaking what he was saying. And so the response of the audience is they all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words. So obviously there was more in his preaching, more more that came. And when the sermon was over, uh, they said, isn't this Joseph's boy? I mean, he grew up with us. Man, he sure can preach to you know, grown up here in Nazareth, and we saw him running around in the dirt out there when he was a little kid. And we're astonished. We're amazed at what we're hearing. And so Jesus goes on from there as they are commending him and talking about how wonderful his words were. Jesus then expands and says, you'll quote the proverb, position, heal yourself, meaning Show us, show us something, show us your stuff, show us what you're going to do. We've heard your words and we're pretty impressed, but we want to see something. And, 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 and verse, the latter part of the verse is, says, we've heard that you've done some pretty neat stuff in Capernaum. Well, this is your hometown. Capernaum's not your hometown. We're your hometown. We're your relatives, so to speak. Many of them may have been. So uh, show us some miracles. Surely, if you did stuff down in that hick town called Capernaum, 
then here in Nazareth, you'll show us some really good stuff. That's what, that's what they were asking for. So Jesus says, then, okay, a prophet is not accepted in his own hometown. Uh, is that true of any of you? Uh, you know, maybe you've accomplished a lot in life, but not in the town where you grew up. And uh, when you go back home for a visit, if you ever do that, well, they don't think of you there as some muckly muck. They're just, oh, yeah, that's him. I remember him growing up. Boy, he got in trouble all the time. How is that? Well, prophet is without honor in his hometown. It's a pretty, pretty famous saying initiated here by Jesus. Well, let's think about this passage. Jesus went to the outcast and proclaimed the kingdom of God. The gospel sets people free. And Israel was oppressed under the heel of Rome. So Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Caesar. The gospel speaks to people where they are. And that's what we proclaim to people in any setting. We proclaim the good news, the gospel, regardless of who they are and where they are. The message is the same. That's why it's called good news. It's for everybody. And our task is not to fill our heads or necessarily anyone else's with facts, but to find beggars and to tell them where there's bread and to find lepers and tell them where they can find cleansing. Now, what does that say to us in our setting before I get back to the text? What are we to do as a church? What are we to do as individual believers? We are to proclaim the gospel. What methods and means are open to us to proclaim the gospel? Well, certainly we can come to church and listen to great teaching in Sunday school and listen to preaching. That's one way. And we can invite folks to come with us. It's a good thing. We can also be a witness in our own homes, in our neighborhood, in our community, verbally sharing our faith. Uh, uh, Belinda Jordan, I think I saw her on here. Was it her porch visit Sunday? Wonderful. And I really appreciated what Belinda said about sharing the gospel. And so there are all kinds of ways of sharing the gospel. She talked about uh, that bracelet that, that she wears and, and maybe some of the other ladies here wear a, a, a witnessing tool. But I also heard Belinda say we can share our own personal testimony. And, and we can do that. Guys, that might be better than wearing a bracelet for, for some of us. But we, we want to share the gospel. We share our own witness, our own testimony. There are other ways to share the gospel. Uh, that is by uh, either being a missionary or going on a mission trip or financially and prayerfully supporting missions around the world. And then also in, um, in, in the planting of churches in our own community or in other places. And, you know, we're, we've just done that with the renewal and, and we're committed to continue that. We may chronologically have had a small setback because of the coronavirus because we haven't been able to meet, we haven't been able to get together. Committees have had trouble getting everybody together to meet, but we're going to continue on in God's perfect timing. And so we have more churches to plant. And you know, what we've talked about is the next plant, not really being in Belton or Bell County, but being in one of the major cities in our country. Um, and we have some young guys who have already said, I want, I want to be considered. I, I'm one that's interested. Consider me when it's time and we will to be the planting pastor in one of those places. Uh, I shared with the staff this week 
my conversation this weekend with Keith Carpenter. Keith is our, um, we are um, aligned together with Keith in his church in Seattle, Epic Life Church. And if that name sounds familiar, if you remember a few years ago, the young man who preached in our church while he was on a stepladder, if you were here that day, you'll, you'll never forget it. He was on a stepladder, a big one, not a little stepladder, but a, one of those big ones. And he was up near the top and he preached his sermon from the stepladder. Uh, I was out of town that day. That was why I had, had Keith preaching. And so I received a text, an email that day saying, just wanted you to know that Keith preached from a stepladder this morning. And that's all they said. So I, I didn't know if the sender of the email was saying, you, you really need to come home, pastor, <laughs> or, Hey, this was wonderful. That, that's what they said. He preached from a stepladder. I thought, Oh, my soul. Well, I knew Keith, so I knew it was all right. And sure enough, it was everybody told when I got back, talked about what a great sermon it was. Well, we are supporting Keith. We've had several mission trips to Seattle and we had one planned for this summer. Sadly had to be canceled. Um, but I talked to Keith Saturday or Sunday rather. And, um, Keith is one of the most upbeat guys I've ever known, but he was struggling Sunday. We need to pray for Keith. His church is in a very rough part of Seattle and he's three miles from occupied territory or whatever it is that's happened up there. Um, he's just three miles from that. And there's been lots of spillover into his community and uh, his church. You know, they all own it. They run a coffee shop there as a way of witnessing. And so he, he just said, please pray for me. This, this is a struggle, a difficult time for us here in Seattle. And we can only imagine, but uh, there'll come a time when that will simmer down. We hope we pray, but we're committed. And so that's part of our commitment to proclaim good news. And I would submit that if maybe the people who need it the most desperately are those folks right there close to Keith. Um, and so we want to pray for him. But we are meant to announce to the blind that if they believe in Jesus, they may never see with their physical eyes in this life, but they will see glories they cannot imagine. We are meant to announce to prisoners that they may be required to serve their life sentence, but they will be free inside, even if in a jail, if they believe. We must tell the poor that they may not receive riches in this world, but man, do they have some riches in store for them in glory if they will believe in Jesus. Christ Jesus intends for us to go to our neighborhood, to our neighbors and to the whole world and to share that the Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. He died on the cross for your sin. If you'll believe in him, you'll receive eternal life. And ultimately, that will mean spending eternity in heaven with him. Well, back to the text. Um, it, it isn't really a one a one sentence sermon, but that one sentence that starts the sermon just kind of explodes in their ears with the realization that he just claimed to be the Messiah. They heard it. This is fulfilled today in your hearing, in your sight. You're looking at him. You're looking at me. They understood what he's saying. They were amazed at his words, but they want a miracle. Oh my, how many times did 
Jesus have to face that. They wanted a miracle like you did in Capernaum. We're your home folks. So why don't you do something? In fact, why don't you just top what you did in, in Capernaum so that we can say to them, well, he may have done that there, but listen to what he did here. It, it could have been, you think, a little small town rivalry. Yeah, I think there was. So uh, the response that Jesus gives in verse 26 and 27 become what captures the attention of his listeners because he is clearly saying Gentiles will be saved. Those who believe in me, Gentiles will be saved. And the reaction, instead of being, well, praise God for that, was anger. Because pretty clear that at least these Jews who were in the synagogue that day did not want Gentiles to be saved. Now, isn't that perplexing? Because when God chose Israel, what was his intent for them? His intent for them was that they would be a light to the world to point people to the one true and living God. They didn't do that very often. And in this case, they didn't do it at all. Instead of seeing this as, oh, wow. The light is coming to the Gentiles. It is what? No way. And they are angry. They are mad. And they're so mad, they're ready to kill him. They're ready to kill him. And so the text tells us they took him out of the synagogue. They took him to the edge of the cliff upon which the city is built. And they're getting ready to throw him off, which would have killed him, would have killed us. We're not son of God, but. That was their intent. We're going to kill him. Well, guess what? They got their miracle. It wasn't what they were expecting, nor what they wanted, but they got their miracle because all of a sudden Jesus just walked right through them and escapes. I don't know what that looked like. I don't know if, if he was visible and they tried to grab him and they just, they couldn't, uh, or whether he just disappeared. I, I tend to think they saw him every step of the way because it wasn't until after the resurrection that Jesus could, you know, appear out of nowhere. But as, as he was walking away there, there he is grabbing. Hey, you don't let him go. Get away. Block the road. I, you know, there are a lot of things here. We don't know details about, but they got their miracle because he, he got away. And here's the sad part. As far as we know, at least what's recorded in scripture is that, uh, Jesus never went back to Nazareth. Never went back. And that's sad because what that means is they missed their chance. They missed their chance to believe in the Messiah. And that, that's sad. Now, um, I think this points up to us the importance of people when they feel that tugging at their heart comes from the Holy Spirit of responding and being obedient to what Jesus wants you to do, whether it's that call to salvation or whether it's a call and a tug on your heart to be obedient in some area of life. It's important that we respond affirmatively and do what God wants us to do, uh, lest there not be another tug at our heart. Well, um, yeah, we've got time to go to verse 31. So the next section, verse 31 to 37, I entitled Preaching. And delivering. So let's look at what that says. Look at verse 31. 
of uh, the fourth chapter. Oh, guess where he's going now? All right, here we go. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee. Um, the area of Galilee is around the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum was right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, there are towns in Galilee that are uh, in the area of Galilee, but not right on the water. But Capernaum was right on the water. And on the Sabbath, he taught the people. Where where did you go to do that? Well, this text doesn't tell us, but other texts do with the synagogue. Now, one of the exciting things about a journey to Capernaum is that um, we you can go to the synagogue there today and you can see the foundation stones of the synagogue that was in existence when Jesus was there preaching. That's pretty exciting. So he's there and they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. They were used to the rabbis, most of whom didn't have any authority, who were wishy-washy, willy-nilly, and or more law focused, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. And the words of Jesus were refreshing. And he spoke as one who had authority because he did. So they were they liked what they were hearing. In verse 33, in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon. An impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice. Go away. What do you want with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Amazing that this confession comes from a demon-possessed man. Would that the Jews in Nazareth had said, you are the Holy One, the Son of God. But they didn't. Here this demon does, but his is out of fear. The demon's afraid because he knows who Jesus is and he knows what Jesus can do. And he is pleading with Jesus, go away, leave us alone. Now, when it says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? The demon is not saying, what do you want with me and all these good folks who live here in Capernaum? Now, he's talking about the multiplicity of demons who dwell inside this man. What do you want with us? Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. And he shifts to the singular. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What does Jesus say to him? Be quiet. Jesus said sternly. So it wouldn't have been, be quiet. It would have been, be quiet. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. And all the people were amazed and said to each other, what words are these? With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. So Jesus has authority over nature. He has authority over the demonic. He has authority over illness and sickness. He has authority over all things. And so here's a demonstration of his authority over the demonic. This won't be the last time, as you know, that he casts out demons. So this demon-possessed man was loud. I found this intriguing. 
he's loud. He's saying, we know who you are. You're, you're the Holy One of God. And I think about the demon being loud and telling who Jesus is and, and how quiet we can be sometimes in telling who Jesus is or not telling who Jesus is. By contrast, the demon was loud. So it's okay to be verbal. Now, that doesn't mean you need to shout it all the time. That's not my implication. But what I am saying, it's okay to be verbal and to let people know you're a Jesus follower and here's who he is. So he he shuts up the demon and casts him out and there's deliverance for this man. And the people were stunned and they were in awe. And so the text says, listen carefully, the text says they all went home and kept really quiet about this story. Is that correct? No, that's not correct. They did not keep quiet about the story. They were in awe and they shared the news because it says in verse 37, the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Now, uh, Capernaum, for instance, is uh, pretty close to Bethsaida. My guess is within a matter of a few minutes, somebody from Capernaum sprinted to Bethsaida and told the news of what they had seen and heard. You think? I believe that. And other small towns and villages, the word spread about what Jesus had done. And the good news is for everyone. Don't miss him. Don't miss out on him like those did in Nazareth. Now, um, we're going to read verse 38 to 44 because I can be real quick, and then we'll do chapter 5 next time. Look at verse 38. It says, Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. That's Peter. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. Now, you talk about total healing. Here's a woman who's been days in bed with a fever. You ever had a fever? What does it do to you? It leaves you weak. And the last thing you want to get up and do is begin to cook a meal right after you've gotten over a fever. You just don't have the strength and the energy to do it. But when Jesus healed you, just like that, it's total and complete. And she felt so good that she got up and, and began to wait on the family and to, and to cook meals for Jesus, Peter, and whoever whoever else was there. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all had various kinds of sicknesses and laying their hands on each one, he healed them. So here's power over illness. Well, here we come with the demons again. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Time has not yet come for him to, for the news of him to spread all over the place. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues in Judea. I may need to pick up there when I come back next time. But he heals his mother-in-law. It's instant and total. Now, I've always been impressed that she got up and began to serve the family and whoever was there. Um, 
I, I, I can't, I always remember this story. When I was in Corpus Christi as a youth minister, uh, we had prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, as most churches did in those days. And we had a prayer list, and then folks could raise their hand and give prayer requests. So we we're all familiar with that. And there was a guy there who's in his uh, in his 30s, and everybody knew him well. He was a little different. I'll just put it that way, a little different. And so he was by himself that night. His wife was not with him, and their kids weren't with him. And uh, we knew his wife was pregnant, uh, but didn't know the baby had come. He stood up, and he said, I want to tell you all. First thing I got to ask, he's got a wife and kids, several other kids at home. And, and he tells us our baby came today and immediately I'm looking at him and saying, why are you here? Why are you at home with your wife and kids? What, what he said then, he was just lucky that every woman in the room didn't claw his eyeballs out because he said, and we've already come home from the hospital. And in fact, my wife, cook dinner for the whole family tonight. And it was like, he was proud of that. And I think every woman in the room and probably some of the men too would like to have taken him outside and, and pummeled him for, for being proud of that. Uh, having just given birth. But I thought, okay, well, I think about that. And I think about what Jesus did when he healed this, this woman, the mother-in-law of Peter. And she, she served his, he, her, his healing was total and complete. Many come to him. He heals them all. Not just some of them, but he heals them all and he casts out demons. So we're going to pick up there next time. Maybe a few more words about that passage and then to chapter five. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for the authority, the power of Jesus. Thank you for the gift of eternal life in him. Bless us today that we might be a reflection of the Christ who is in us. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. God bless you.